Let's come to God's word then to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 1 to 11. feel very much led to take another message on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's so important to us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 1 to 11. Referring to the scripture quite a lot. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Now brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. This was the problem at the church at Thessalonica. They were getting caught up in when Christ was going to come and they felt it was going to be so soon that they gave up their work. They stopped working and became idle and they became busybodies. And so Paul has to write to them about this this, uh, obsession they had with dates and times and Christ coming so soon. So he says, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appear to us to suffer wrath, appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So you'll know, you'll know what we've been doing. We've been doing a series on the great truths about Jesus Christ. After the resurrection of Jesus, after Easter Sunday. One of them is the triumph that Jesus enjoyed. The triumph over Satan, the triumph over his enemies. The second week we spoke about the legacy he left. All the things that Jesus has left us that would empower our lives. And the third thing we spoke about uh, last week was the return that he promised, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I feel that we want to uh, say something more about that. But also, last week we spoke about the return of the Lord as being important. How do we know that it was important, the second coming of Christ? Because the Bible teaches it. All these verses, about 300 references in the scripture, New Testament, to the second coming of Christ our Saviour. The Bible uh, teaches it, the apostles declared it. That after Jesus had gone to be with the Father, the apostles would preach about the coming again of Christ Jesus. How again do we know it's important? Because the creeds of the Christian church include it. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all have a, a few words that say that Christ is coming 
to judge the quick and the dead. By the word quick and the old terminology it means the living and the dead. And so these great creeds of the Christian church felt it was necessary to include the second coming of Christ as a statement of what they believed. I don't know how many believe in the churches of today in the second coming of Christ. We hardly hear about it. But certainly it's in the creeds that people recite in various branches of the Christian church. We said it wasn't only important, but it was imminent. And by imminent we mean that the signs that Jesus spoke about in Mark chapter 13 are becoming closer in their fulfillment. We can see things about these prophecies of Jesus that perhaps we couldn't see before. What were these prophecies? Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. That would be unheard of. That this great temple, the third one that had been built by Herod, that this great temple should be left with no stone upon any other stone. And yet it happened in AD 70 under the emperor, the Roman emperor Titus. And Jesus also prophesied disasters in the world. Well, you might say there have been disasters in the world ever since the time of Jesus. That's true. But there's going to be such a thing, I believe, as world disorder. International disorder. Now, if you haven't seen that in your television screen or in your newspapers, you haven't been listening. There's all kinds of things, whether it's the economy, whatever it might be, Afghanistan, the Taliban, whatever it might be, there are things happening. Who would ever imagined that something in the East would affect America in the West? Who would ever imagined that 9-11 would have taken place? And thousands upon people, their lives would be lost. So there can be such a thing as international disorders on a scale that we've never actually seen before. Now but also there's a good news coming through in the prophecies of Jesus in Mark 13. The deliverance through the Spirit. He says that the gospel must be preached. The gospel has to be preached to every nation. Doesn't it say the gospel has to be preached to every person in the world, but to every nation the gospel was to be preached. I don't know how close we are getting to the gospel being preached to every nation, but now in the advent of satellite and radio and all the things that are going on, people can access the internet. Even places like China that forbid these religious broadcasts, people are still able to access these things. The gospel must be preached, a word must be spoken, the patient will be saved, those that endure to the end shall be saved, it says in the word of God. All men will hate you because of me, says Jesus, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And number fourth prophecy of Jesus was the deception in the church. And boy, can we see that today. Church is deceived into thinking that the Bible teaches what it doesn't teach. Would you ever believe that these kind of things would be taught today? Whether it's same-sex marriage, whatever it might be. That the Bible does not say that kind of thing. And yet people seem to be deceived in the church of today. And number five, of course, was the descent of the Lord. In verses 24-27 of Mark 13. I closed last Sunday with a very, very interesting verse of scripture. Not one that you would quote off the top of your head. And it comes in that one chapter letter of Jude. And verses 14 and 15. That Enoch it says, who is seventh from Adam 
prophesied about the second coming of Christ. That is quite amazing when you think how far back Enoch goes, seventh in line. It says in the scriptures in Jude chapter, well only one chapter, and verses 14 and 15, Enoch the seventh of Adam prophesied about these men, see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of the ungodly acts that they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Now that prophecy is nowhere else in the Bible but Jude. So what is that prophecy saying that Christ is going to come in a procession with his holy ones? I don't know if you like processions or not. We used to have a gala day every year in the village where I was brought up and all the kids in the school would all be in the procession. I was telling you last week about, um, it may have been the Baptist Youth Congress that was held in Glasgow. We had a Jesus march. It was fantastic. Greg Kenrick was there. He was leading the whole thing and we went from the SEC to the Kelvin Grove Park. And there's two things about a procession. You can either be in it or at it. Well, we were in it. And those who were in it got a tremendous blessing because we loved the Lord Jesus Christ. We were singing to the, the top of our heads and our voices. We were singing the praises of our Lord as we made our way to the Kelvin Grove Park. Now, you can be in this procession when the Lord comes or you can be at it as a sinner or you can be in it as a saint. And the question is, what's it, what's it going to be? Are you going to be at it to be judged or in it to be blessed and to judge the nations? It's a big question that we have to answer. And of course what we were saying last week as well, not everybody is going to be there in heaven when Christ comes. There are those who would like to teach that we're all going to get there at the end of the day. Well, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 24, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Many on that day will wish, according to the song that's been written, we're all been ready. But I believe the Lord wants us to be ready, doesn't he? And we gave sort of four indications uh, last week of how we can be ready. We can walk by faith. We can live in peace. We can rely on hope. We can watch and pray. That was last week. <laughs> if anybody wants these notes, well, I can give them to you or send by email. One of the truths that we have to grasp is you cannot fix a date on the second coming of Christ. One of the great faults of the JWs as a number of times they have fixed a date. When I was ministering in Alexandria, I think it was 1975, something like that. Christ was coming back in 1975. And then that was changed. Well, we started actually about 1914. Christ was coming back in 1914. He was coming back in 1975. He was coming back later on. And then they tried to get out of that by saying, well, we didn't actually see him. But he came back. Folks have nothing to do with JWs. Because the Bible clearly teaches us that we don't fix dates on the second coming of Christ. Nobody knows, says Jesus, except the Father. 
Only the Father knows. Not even the angels in heaven know, said Jesus. But only the Father. So anybody who tries to tell you that Christ is coming back on a certain day is not telling the truth. But you know there's an interesting picture given to us in the scripture that Christ is coming back for some like a thief in the night. And what's so interesting is that Jesus said it, Peter said it, and Paul says it in Philippians. It says in Matthew 24, No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at another when you don't expect him. That's Matthew, that's Jesus teaching in Matthew. Peter says in Second Peter, But the day the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it laid bare. Then Paul's word in First Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, that passage that we read, And the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So if you're thinking this is going to be some great event that is going to be announced and that everybody's going to be ready for this, think again. Folk are not going around today expecting the second coming of Christ. They're not going around today thinking, I wonder when it will be. They are sleeping. They are people of the night. People of the darkness. And they haven't woke up yet. And they still have to get the light to be ready for Christ's coming. The thief doesn't go around telling everybody, I'm going to be ransacking your house tomorrow night. Never does that, does he? Last week he spoke about, before that procession, that procession can take place in Jude, chapter 1, 14 and 15. Before the procession, you've got to have the formation. And the formation in the Bible is called the rapture, where the church of Jesus Christ will be caught up to Jesus. And so you find it, if you look in your Bible at 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 15 and 17, you'll see this formation taking place. Before the procession, there's got to be the formation. And so it says, according to the Lord's own word, this is the Lord that's speaking, uh, Paul says here. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be with the Lord forever. That's a fantastic, a fantastic passage of scripture, isn't it? A wonderful passage. That those who are dead in Christ just now, those who have died, are going to rise first to get a resurrection body before those of us who may be alive at his coming are caught up to meet one another. And so we shall ever be with the Lord, it says. It's quite exciting. What is going to be this formation then? Number one, there will be a summons from heaven. Look at the words, a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. Now Christians disagree about the details of all these things. Some say is it going to be a, a call from heaven that only the believers will hear and the rest won't hear? I don't really know. All I can say is what the word of God teaches. Heaven alarm, heaven's alarm system will break loose. 
heaven's alarm system will break loose. We won't be left in any doubt when the day comes. What we need to remember is that there's an hour on God's wonderful time clock that's going to keep perfect time. It's going to keep perfect time. It's been reserved for the sending of his son to this earth and God's clock keeps perfect time. So the first thing that will happen is the summons from heaven. The next thing that's going to happen is the gathering in the air. Let me illustrate with the thought, there used to be, I don't know if they still use it or not, but those big rubbish dumps that you get with cars and all that sort of stuff. Uh, And they've got these great big powerful magnets and they come down and if there's any kind of rubbish that's not steel, it'll not be taken. These powerful magnets will take the steel and they will lift them up and put them somewhere else where they want this steel thing to go actually. But why does that happen? Because the quality that's in the steel answers to the quality that's in the magnet. And so we find that there's a quality in the believer that answers to the call, the trumpet call of God, that answers to that. And those who are alive in him will be caught up to meet him in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. The gathering in the air. And then there's going to be the final preparation. And part of that final preparation is the judgment seat of Christ. If you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 to 15 says... If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Folk, I'm going to ask you a question today. What are you building your life with on the foundation of Christ he's the foundation of our lives but what are you building on that foundation is it silver and gold is it something that's going to last the fire and the flames and the the trials and the tribulations that we go through in life or is it something that's going to get burned up because we've let a lot of dross a lot of wood and hay and stubble that's just going to get burned up and all that's going to be left is as being saved, so as by fire. Or saved by the skin of the teeth, is how the Bible puts it elsewhere. The judgment seat of Christ. Do you know that you're going to stand before Christ as a believer? Do you know that? You're going to stand before Christ as a believer, and you'll have to give an account of everything you've done in the body. That's what the Bible says. And the three things are going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ as a believer. The first is our Christian life and service will be assessed. Secondly, our reward for good will be assigned. And thirdly, our place in that procession will be ascribed. You see folks, there's going to be greater rewards in heaven for those who are martyrs for Christ. Those who have been persecuted, those who have given their life for Christ, will wear a martyr's crown. I'm not sure if it's a real crown or not, but they will get a greater reward than anybody else because they've given the ultimate sacrifice of their life for Christ and for his service. The judgment seat of Christ is not a place of condemnation. You're not going to be condemned for your past life when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but it's a place of inspection. It's a place of examination with regard to our lives in the body. 
And the Bible clearly teaches there will be degrees of blessing in heaven. Romans chapter 14 and verse 10 is important in this regard. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we shall all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess. The humanist knee will bow. The communist knee will bow. The atheist knee will bow. Every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will confess to God. And so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Does that not challenge us about how we, what we think about other people? It says, why do you judge your brother? This is talking about Christians judging other Christians. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For be careful what you say about other believers. Be careful what you say about the Lord's anointed. Even David wouldn't let his soldiers kill Saul because he believed that Saul was the Lord's anointed. We said that in part of the final preparation, the judgment seat of Christ, here's the next part of the, the judgment, the final preparation, is the marriage supper of the Lord, of the Lamb. And by the Lamb it means Christ. There's going to be a great feast. Is that not good news? Hallelujah. Have I been looking for an invitation to a wedding? Well, you've got one. If you're a believer, you're going to meet at the most wonderful wedding you've ever been at. There's a great feast before that procession in Jude 14 and 15. There's a meeting of the bride and the bridegroom. And we are the brides. The church is the bride of Christ. And Christ is seen here as the bridegroom. Waiting anxiously and wonderfully for his bride to come. The bride of Christ will be robed in bright white linen. That's why I used to tell the ministers, I've not got a robe, but I'm going to get one. Christ is preparing one for me. I haven't got one just now. The symbol of purity purchased for her at the cross of Calvary. And John describes that wonderful wedding beautifully in Revelation 1969. It says this. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands, it says in Revelation, for the righteous acts of the saints. And the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Folks, you are invited when you know Jesus Christ as your Saviour. And that's going to happen before the procession of Jude 14 and 15. Remember that old term, the sands of time are sinking? Do you remember that verse? The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the king of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, gifteth, but on the pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. That's the formation before the procession. There's the resurrection of Christ from of the dead in Christ, the glorious rapture of the living church, the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I won't go on, I can't go on, it'll take about two or or three other messages to talk about the Antichrist and the false prophet and the tribulation, whether the church goes through the tribulation, I'm not going to get involved in all that sort of thing. Then comes the procession that we spoke about last week in Jude 14 and 15. It says in that verse, 
and verses 14 and 15 of Jude. See, the Lord is coming. Behold, the Lord is coming. And remember the promise in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. When that procession stops, friends, the feet of Jesus is going to stand on the top of of the Mount of Olives. And we have been there, haven't we? His feet will stand. And it says in Zechariah 14.4 On that date his feet, a day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west forming a great valley the half of the mountain moving north and the half moving south. You see there's going to be something happening geographically. There's going to be an earthquake and that mountain's going to split. And there's going to be something that's going to happen nationally. You see Jerusalem's going to be beset with enemy nations. In the great battle of Armageddon. And we've seen that area of Armageddon. Then in the midst of the battle of the Lord. The Lord will go forth and he'll fight against the nations. And the Lord will smite those who fought against Jerusalem. And the Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. And the people, the Jews, will recognize their Messiah. Hallelujah for that. It's great that some have come to know the Messiah just now. I've got a, a daughter-in-law who's a Messianic Jew. But at that time, the Jews will recognize him. So the Lord will be king over the earth. A seal will be set upon Satan for a thousand years to prevent him deceiving the nations. Then he will be released for a time allowed to deceive the nations. Then he'll be, he'll be cast into the lake of fire. And then comes that great white throne. This is not the judgment of the believer. This is the judgment of the ungodly. The judgment of those who fuse Christ. And when that procession comes to do battle, Christ coming with all his holy ones. They come to do battle. They come to judge the ungodly. I ask you the question again. Will you be at it as a sinner? Or will you be in it as a saint? Because you're going to come. If you're in it, you're going to come. And you're going to reign with him. Forever and ever. And we're going to do battle against these nations. And Christ will win against them. Let me close with the challenge of our Lord's coming found in 1 Thessalonians 5. Let me just say how it affects us. What is the challenge of this message on the Lord's coming? How will it affect us? Number one is this. It should dominate our worldview. The teaching is basic. It affects the way we look at ourselves. It affects the way that we look at the news on television. It affects the way that we think of history. All history is his story, isn't it? It affects how we look at our values. Everything is coloured by the fact of what is going to happen at the end time. But not, that's not true of the world. They don't think about that kind of thing. This teaching on the day of the Lord does not dominate their view. But what does Paul say in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5? He says, While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains in a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Many of you have heard of Lord Shaftesbury, the great Christian philanthropist. Toward the end of his life, Lord Shaftesbury said this, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of the Lord's return. 
the last 40 years I can't think of an hour when I have not been influenced by the thought of the return of Jesus Christ that's quite a statement it should dominate our view of the world it should elevate our lifestyle Look at verses 4 and 7. But you brothers are not in darkness as this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. Don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. You see, this day is to, is to elevate, is to lift our lifestyle out of darkness into light, out of sleep into being alert. When you get to know Christ as your saviour, you're no longer living in darkness. You're no longer asleep to these things. You're alert to the fact that Christ is coming again. And finally, number three, it should activate our priorities. In verses 8 to 11. It says there, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. I believe there are two priorities that you can see here. Number one is is the priority of salvation the basis of our salvation is the death of Jesus Christ and here Paul is re-emphasizing the glorious saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ here is the glorious good news that God's intention is not that we should suffer wrath or judgment but that we should be saved that we should be in the procession and not at it the salvation mentioned here in First Thessalonians 5 probably includes the consummation of that salvation. You see, folks, salvation has three tenses. I have been saved from the penalty of sin through the death of Christ Jesus. I am being saved from the power of sin by the risen Christ. And I'm going to be saved, hallelujah, from the presence of sin by the coming of Christ. Saved from the penalty of sin by the crucified Christ. Saved from the power of sin by the risen Christ. Saved from the presence of sin by the coming Lord. And then we see the final priority. The priority of salvation. The priority of protection. Look at verse 8. And verse 8 it talks about the three graces. Faith, hope and love. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate. And the hope of salvation as a helmet. And Paul puts it in terms of the armour. And these pieces that he talks about are pieces of defence, of, of protection for us. And the words putting on have the idea of a decisive action. And it's all bound up with the truth in verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to put on the armour as a result of our salvation. Can I ask you this question? What kind of protection have you got? I'm not asking about the insurance for your house, the insurance for the car. We, we make sure we've got protection for the car, we've got protection for the house, maybe even life cover as well. What kind of protection have you got for the second coming of Christ? Paul says, you need to put on the armour of God. 
this breastplate, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. As a helmet. How do you put on the armour? How do you put on this breastplate of love and faith and the helmet of hope? And number one is by the continual reminders. Did you notice what it says in verse 1? It says, Now brothers, about times and dates we did not need to write to you. For we know very well that the day of the Lord will come in a thief. Paul is saying, you, we, we, you told you about these things. But we're giving you a reminder. And folks, we need a reminder again and again and again of the second coming of Christ. It's not something you talk about once in a blue moon. This is something that dominates our worldview, that, that uh, elevates our lifestyle, that is part of us. And Paul says, I'm going to remind you about these things. And the last one is a decisive commitment it's as we commit ourselves to the church, committing ourselves to each other, praying with each other, a decisive action, ministering to each other, we're deciding not to hear each other put down, but instead, says Paul in verse 11, to encourage each other and to build each other up. So there's two priorities, the priority of salvation, the priority of protection. So the day of the Lord is to dominate our worldview, is to elevate our lifestyle, is to activate our priorities. Let me close with this thought. There are only two days, as far as the Bible says, that should concern us. And one is today. It says in the word of God, today, if you hear his voice... Harden not your heart. Only two days that you should be concerned about. One is today. And I'm asking you the question, today, do you know Christ as your Saviour? Today, have you invited Christ into your Lord? And the other day is the day of the Lord, capital D. The day that will come like a thief in the night to those who are in darkness and to those who are asleep only two days that need to concern us today and the day of the Lord do you know him today let's bow in prayer perhaps you've never given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and perhaps you're saying to yourself if Christ should come back I'm not ready if Christ should come I haven't got that protection of faith and love of that helmet and that shield of faith I'm going to ask you to ask Jesus to come into your heart and all you have to do is say Lord I thank you for dying on the cross for me I thank you for being my saviour and my lord and I invite you to come into my heart this very day so I'm ready for that other day the day of the Lord will you do that now? will you make him your saviour? he died for you on the cross and God does not want you to appear before him in judgement and experience the wrath of God he wants you to be wonderfully saved and that can happen today take a moment or two to make that prayer your very own. Just want to thank you, Lord, for all the things we've been learning from your word, for the triumph that you enjoyed, 
for the legacy you left for the return that you promised and forgive us if it hasn't dominated our old view if it hasn't elevated our lifestyle if it hasn't activated our priorities in life may it do so now and forevermore Amen